Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first true crime case, there's no going back. So let's do this. All right, let's get into some updates. So I started a new podcast this week, which I'm really loving. It's called Morbid. So it's just these two girls. I think they're sisters or stepsisters, and they cover true crime cases. But I just really like it because I like when it's not, like, so serious. Mm-hmm. I know that doesn't really make much sense, but, you know, you're talking about something that's really horrible, but there's, like, moments of, like, light humor or yeah. just discussion that's kind of evening it all out. But anyway, I highly recommend that if you are into true crime podcasts, which if you're listening, I hope you are, and uh, <laughs> that you go and check them out because they're great. What else this week? Well, Ollie is doing great. He is getting used to the crate. Uh, he's not doing so well on his walks, but we're working <laughs> on it. It's taking a lot of patience, but he's doing what Maggie earlier called the puppy breaks, like when they yep. refuse to keep walking which is extremely frustrating when you're trying to burn your puppy's energy and they don't want to go it's gonna be a struggle but once you got it you got it yeah other than that he is doing really well and we're we're really enjoying having him and just kind of enjoying the puppy stage i just had the hardest week with work it was just so busy so crazy i work from home but you know when you're so busy you feel like you can't step away to go pee for a second (laughs) It's like you really just can't even take time to breathe. And then with two dogs, like one trying to mess with the other one and barking, it's it's been a lot. So you know what? It's Friday night. I'm going to go to bed probably at like 8 p.m. We mentioned last week that we were thinking about creating our merch and we this week got our sample merch. So if you're watching on YouTube... We have our sweaters on, so we both designed two different styles. We'll post them on social media so that it's you can see them better. But we have crewneck sweaters, we have hats, we have like dad hats, we have trucker hats, phone cases, we have mugs that are similar to the ones we drink from in our episodes. And yeah, we're really excited. It's been kind of simple for us to set up in a way. Uh, the company that we're working with is really great. They sell everything through Etsy, and everything that we've ordered has come within a week, definitely. And it's so comfy I'd say I'm pretty picky with like I don't know like loungewear or casual wear whatever you would call that because that's literally what I live in it's the best sweater I own yeah they're just extremely comfortable we we love a good sweater loves some loungewear so yeah so if you're interested go go check out our Etsy shop it's just terrible true crime on Etsy and like I said the shipping comes really quick and if you have any suggestions comments or questions please feel free to reach out to us on our social media we're really excited right now we're just all buying all of our own merch which is <laughs> fine with us we're so happy with it <laughs> but if anyone else is interested we we're really happy to have created this and for you guys to be able to, to purchase it the sources for this week's case are ottawa citizen articles one by hugh adamu another one by joanne locious as well as taylor blowett there is a medium article by deborah buck and we also used a couple wikipedia pages for our research this week the first case we're discussing in this episode is the disappearance of 10-year-old Lonnie Philip Boudreau. Oh, how many cases do we have? 
We have two. Two. We have okay. two. I know. I'm throwing a surprise at you because originally I was going to do this as a mini episode, but as I was researching this, another case came up and I thought the two went hand in hand pretty well. So okay. I thought we'd cover both of the cases in one episode. The Lonnie Boudreau case takes place in Ottawa in the neighborhood of Vanier. This case is a little extra special to me because my dad grew up in Vanier just a couple of streets away from Lonnie at the time of his disappearance. They were around the same age and actually had some friends in common. My dad knew of Lonnie, and I think this case has always stuck with him. We've discussed this case together, and I've been excited to cover it ever since we started the podcast. I asked him to give us some context for this episode, and this is what he wrote for us. Vanier is a small city just east of Ottawa's downtown core. In the late 70s and early 80s, the majority of the population was made up of working-class Francophone families. Families were booming, and there were French as well as English elementary schools plastered throughout the neighborhood. Our summers and evening were a lot like the movie Sandlot. Sorry, I like that. I know, it's so cute, eh? (laughs) Everyone rode around on their bicycles and you could get to anywhere you needed to go on your bike. A game of pretty much anything would break out in someone's backyard, driveways, and parks and schools or at the White Fathers. Parents were not at all that involved and kids would just gather in a park or in a corner and decide what activity would occupy our time. When we were thirsty, we would drink out of someone's outdoor hose. And he says, that was our Gatorade. And Uh when we were... I, I know, this is, I was texting Matthew earlier this week, but this kind of made me feel a bit emotional, like it's just so, so sweet, and this is just so my dad. <laughs> and we were hungry, we headed home for a quick bite to eat, usually a bologna sandwich in most households. When not enough kids were left to do whatever it was that we were doing, the remaining kids would head home or go out looking for something else to do in order not to have to go back home. Unlike today, there were no cell phones so that everyone could text their friends to tell them that they had made it home. And there was no worries if someone did not make it home as he or she may have bumped into someone else and then been off doing something else. It was very common to see someone's older or younger brother or sister driving by on their bicycle yelling out to see if anyone has seen his or her siblings as they were expected to be home and were late. This is like very sweet. Like mm-hmm. it is so well, maybe early on in our childhood, kind of a little bit more. Like I grew up in, in kind of a neighborhood, not necessarily similar to this, but we didn't have cell phones when we went out to hang no. out with our friends. So Mm-mm. like you would go to your neighbors, knock and be like, Hey, you wanna go out and play? You wanna go hang out? Yeah. And then exactly. just go hang out. But throw that back even further, right? So exactly. he says there was no CNN back then or twenty four hour news cycles. So if someone went missing in your neighborhood, you would hear about it from a friend or a neighbor and the details would be sketchy. If someone went missing from the other end of the city, you would not even hear about it at all. Details would be provided in the next day's newspaper, which would be delivered at supper time. So there would be a big gap between the event happening and when it made it to the family's kitchen table for discussion. That said, most of the time in a missing person's case, the kid would have been back home before the ink was dry on the newspaper. So the newspaper editor would not necessarily necessarily publish these stories on the front page as most of the time they ended up not being a full story at all. How did I know Lonnie? Lonnie lived on or just off Whitefathers Avenue, a block away from Whitefathers Park slash Woods, and all of us kids would spend a lot of time in Whitefathers either playing baseball, football, British Bulldog, biking on trails in wooded areas, and tobogganing in the wintertime. If this I'm sorry, put a smile on your say, face. Yeah. It's, it's just so cute to hear about our parents. And like, obviously this is your dad, but like just parents talk about like their childhood, what they did, just seeing them in that light is just the cutest thing ever. I know. Like if this doesn't put a smile on your face when you're listening to it, like your heart is black. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We lived just a block away from Lonnie and Lonnie was good friends and spent a lot of time at one of his friend's places, Dan. 
Dan was the youngest brother of my best friend, so we would often be in the same house, not necessarily playing together as we were a few years older. Back then, you either knew the older sibling or the younger sibling, or you knew of the person through sports or school, so even if you did not know someone enough to chat with them, usually everyone within a block would know who the person walking or biking down the street was. He gives us an example here. He is the guy who owns the big black dog. So just like just that neighborhood where everyone knows everyone, right? Even if you don't know necessarily details about their life. Um, yeah just that kind of community. When he went missing, everyone expected him to show up at any time. He had run away before, and from what most of us knew, he came from a bit of a broken home. He was often out late and on the street. Like I said earlier, when everyone else was gone home, the last few kids who don't necessarily want to go home go looking for something else to do, and could end up with friends or siblings listening to music in a basement or smoking up at the White Father's. Which, so at the beginning of the pandemic, my dad and I went for, for walks around the White Fathers, and he showed me the first place he had his first beer, or smoked his Aww. first cigarette, so. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so it's just very, very that, right? So he's definitely painting a picture right now of, you know, the kids who did come from those those homes that weren't maybe as supportive or had some trouble in them, had many places to go to kind of avoid going back home. That said, he often slept at my friend Dan's house, but he never contacted him after he went missing. If he had simply run away and had been on the streets of downtown Ottawa for a few days before something happened to him, he would have most likely called Dan. Because there was no CNN or Dateline type of shows, I don't recall there being much follow-up on his missing. It was in the newspapers a bit, but that was it. I would have been in grade 7 or 8 back then, and even though he did not go to our school, I don't even recall teachers talking to kids about it. Either to encourage anybody who has any information to share it with the police, or the fact that there may have been someone out there abducting kids on the street. Which is, this is hard to kind of hear, you know, you think that. Yeah. And maybe it's that whole, like, if we don't talk about it, then it's not true, or like. Yeah, and especially in like a close-knit community where everyone knows everyone, you kind of, I don't know, hope your community would want to find you and would want, you know, to talk about it. Yeah, like they should all be, from what the way my dad's describing all this, they should all be looking out for each other, right? Yeah, and especially if there's no news back then, like there is now, so. So that's the end of, of my dad's quote, and I just wanted to take a second to thank him. He's truly the best and has always supported me in anything I've done, including this podcast. I'd like to say he's a big reason why I think I'm so funny and cool. He's taught me so much about life and shown me all the cool music and movies he grew up watching and just all the life skills. So thank you, Norm. You're pretty great. Lonnie was born in 1970 to parents Elmer and Linda. He was described as a high-spirited and smart kid. In 1975, his parents divorced and the kids in the house were sent to live with their father and saw their mother on the weekends. In 1977, Elmer meets another woman who had children of her own. They all move in together, but it's reported that Lonnie had a difficult time with this. Obviously, he's young, his parents are recently divorced. Um, I, I mean, I don't have that experience, but I know that it's really hard on a lot of people mm-hmm. for him to be so young, and it sounds like he, he was really you know, having a difficult time with this. Yeah, and I feel like the younger you are, the less you understand, you know, what's going on and why. So I feel like that probably makes it a lot harder too. Yeah, and his life is just changing so much, right? He went from not only his family being together, then his family being separated, to now his dad has has met another woman. Mm -hmm. And that woman has kids of her own. Yeah. It's just a lot. It's reported that Elmer found a daycare agency that was connected with the Children's Aid Society. I'm not exactly sure why the daycare agency is connected with the Children's Aid Society. My guess is that it might have been a low-income daycare or, you know, but... 
I don't think it had, it didn't, I don't want to, like, paint a picture that had to do with, like, child abuse. That's not what this is. I think it might just have been, like, extra support for families in need. Um, so anyway, so he reaches out to them, and through this, they found Mel and Pam Spalling, who would take care of Lonnie while Elmer worked. So this was a couple, and they were really great for Lonnie. The Spallings would take Lonnie fishing and occasionally visit a farm on the Quebec side. By mid-1977, the CAS had placed Lonnie under temporary full time care of the spellings we don't have a ton of details on this and we, we shouldn't really because this is kind of personal family matters but if i had to speculate i'd say that he was really thriving at the spallings house and um not doing so well at home still having a hard time with the separation and having to live with another family now so for for a while he does go and live with the spallings the agency working with the boudreaux family believe that the kids should be reunited with their mother soon so soon after this the siblings do move back to vanier to live with their mom apparently elmer tried to fight to have his kids back since him and his girlfriend had recently broken up. I guess that was a point of contention related to him having custody of the kids, but the decision had been made. Lonnie, as many kids of divorce, was hoping his parents would eventually get back together. Just... Poor Lonnie. I know. And I love that name. Isn't that such a sweet name, Lonnie? Yeah, it's yeah. cute. But yes, poor, poor Lonnie, he's just not not fully getting it, which no one would expect a kid to, to fully get it, right? It's, it's just very hard. And he's gone through so many changes in the past years. It feels like his life's been really unstable, and like we all know that kids thrive in stability. So in the spring of 1978, Lonnie was assigned a counselor by CAS, which is really nice to see that like they were kind of keeping up with him and thought this kid could really use some counseling. So the counselor had worked hard to gain Lonnie's trust. In 1980, the CAS placed Lonnie in a home with other children of his age, and after six months, he got to return back home. So again, not much detail about this, but I don't know if he was acting out at home or still not doing so well, but he did get placed in kind of like a, you know, kind of a group home style, it sounds like, mm -hmm. or maybe a foster family situation. Yeah, like a temporary. Yeah, exactly. Lonnie was attending grade four and was having some difficulty keeping up. Uh, I just wrote insert rant about the school system because it's just, it's not perfect. I always say I grew up with a learning disability, but I, I live with a learning disability and going through the school system when there's any extra kind of layer of difficulty going on is really hard because it's not, it's maybe that staff or the staff at the school don't have the time to dedicate mm -hmm. extra, you know, resources to you, even though you're in need, whether it's something with learning or something going on in your personal life, but it's not very, it's not always a very individualized approach. And then as soon as someone starts doing bad in school, then the morale goes down. And then what kid who's doing bad in school wants to keep showing up to school? Exactly. Like there's so many different layers to it. And I feel like sometimes there might be policies in place at the school where it technically is written where, you know, you can get anything that may guide you to succeeding. But like you said, teachers don't have the extra time or, or there's always something that's like, but, but, but and that makes it so that they can't actually put in place what would actually help kids succeed. Definitely. And we're talking nowadays, we're talking like yeah. our experience. So thinking mm -hmm. like all the way back, I don't even. Probably nothing. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm going to say probably nothing. They'd say, oh, he maybe again, speculation, but oh, he's a bad kid. He's not doing yeah. well. He doesn't, he's not smart or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And what kid who hears those things or feels those things wants to keep going and pushing through even as an adult <laughs> I, I literally have okay this is like completely different but I have no games on my phone because I I hate losing so like if I'm not good at something I'm not going to show up so I can no. just imagine for a little kid it's even you know greater 
No, that makes complete sense. It's just related, right? If you're being rewarded for something and you're doing well, which kids should be when they're young and they're entering the school system, then they want to keep doing and keep succeeding. But if they're shown that, you know, all they're going to do is get bad grades and get punished for those bad grades, then mm-hmm. why why want to continue? In January of 1981, it's reported that Lonnie had an argument with his father because he wanted to see him more. Elmer had been ending their visits when Lonnie gave him attitude. And I just, oh, parenting is, not is, because I have no idea. <laughs> sounds so hard because Lonnie's upset because he wants to see him more so he's probably acting out or giving him attitude but then Elmer's reaction is to end the visit short Mm -hmm. which I'm I'm not saying is is a bad thing I don't I don't know but so he's just not getting like again it's like I feel like it's a negative like reinforcements in a way like it's just not getting it's almost yeah and it's almost like a vicious circle right it must be hard as a parent to always like a hundred percent of the time take yourself out of it and realize that this is a kid you know learning how to cope with his emotion and how to communicate whereas as a parent you still get emotional as well so you obviously still sometimes have those moments where you can't pull away and and understand as much as you would like to. Yeah, definitely. It's just probably the little frustrations too. Like you said, when you have kids, like you're still living your whole own life, but then Mm -hmm. you have to dedicate so much time to them. And there's no like perfect guidebook to what you should be doing or shouldn't. And obviously Elmer and Linda were in a very difficult situation just to start with off the bat. So February 5th, 1981, Lonnie slips out of his basement window. It's reported that he knew his way around Vanier. this is kind of like just like my dad described like you're just riding your bike around everywhere you had friends around the entire neighborhood so i don't think this was uncommon for him to do someone must have noticed he was missing but i'm not exactly sure who it wasn't really reported i'm gonna go ahead and guess it was linda his mom and i'm also not sure if she calls the police or if police just find lonnie but they find him two miles away at the cineplex on saint patrick's road after a four-hour search so i think the four-hour search would indicate that somebody called the police to say he was missing. Mm-hmm. At the time, Vanny had its own police force. The CAS worker is still in- Yeah, I know, right? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, I think the building is still there. But, That's um, pretty cool. Yeah, they had its own police force. The CAS worker had gotten to know Lonnie pretty well, and later when he was interviewed, this is what he had to say. Lonnie began to open up. Lonnie's attitude seemed to improve. His mother says, although he constantly told her and the CAS worker that he wanted a big brother so he could do things with, like the other kids do with their fathers. He just seems very, very sweet. Like Yeah. And just, like, he doesn't know what to do, but he just knows that he wants that, like, parental figure, that father figure that, like, supports him, loves him, gives him all the attention that he would like. And And we're just getting, like, the reporting or we can get the media, but it does sound like he was trying so hard on his end. So 24 hours after the police returned Lonnie home, he would be gone once again. This is from the Ottawa Citizen. A clever kid with a mischievous smile plastered all over the local papers and evening news. For a while, Lonnie was Ottawa's most famous 10-year-old. His family was worried, but believed Lonnie would soon come home. As days rolled on without finding him, police believed Lonnie may even have enjoyed the notoriety he gained by his disappearance. The boy who got his name from a character in an Elvis Presley movie became known as the city's Tom Sawyer. For six years, Lonnie lived with an obsession, getting his estranged parents back together. Last February, tired of waiting and being shunted from home to home, Lonnie decided it was time to make his move. He would run away and with the attention that would create, startle his parents into realizing how important it was to him for them to reunite. His first attempt 
on February 4th ended in failure. The 10-year-old was picked up by police after a few hours and returned to his mother's home on White Fathers Avenue in Vanier. His second try wouldn't fail. The next day, Lonnie crawled out of the basement window, and except for a few suspected sightings, he hasn't been seen since. And we're going to kind of get into theories and stuff, but this article kind of paints him as a as a runaway, which, to be fair, he had crawled out of that basement window before. But yeah, I strongly believe people don't drop off the face of the earth, but especially that's the not thing, children. Right? Even if he did run away, he was a kid. Something must have happened. And whatever might start as a runaway, I don't feel like ends as a runaway in a situation where you never hear from the kids again. 100%. Lonnie was last seen at 6.30pm on February 5th, 1981. He was wearing blue corduroy pants, a blue v-neck velour sweater, a blue and red lumberjack shirt, and snowmobile boots, which is just the sweetest little like, outfit. Like, does he, doesn't he literally sound like the cutest little boy ever? Yes, definitely. At first, the Vanier police believed that he wasn't really in danger. Lonnie was four foot six and weighed almost 86 pounds. He was adept at shoplifting, and police believed that he was sleeping in stairwells. So, I don't know why they're painting Lonnie as a criminal. Oh, so what? A, a ton of kids shoplift. You know, it's not great. I'm not condoning it, but it does happen. <laughs> and sleeping in stairwells is interesting. I don't know if there was some common stairwells that some kids from broken homes. I just feel so bad. Like, he literally just did not want to go home. And just wanted love from his dad. I just, and I, it's not that his dad wasn't giving him no, love. It's, it's just, just that he wasn't feeling it. Like, yeah. it, I just wish someone would have just held him and just, you know, told him how important he was. There were tips that Lonnie was panhandling on Rito Street and Hank, which is. Rito uh, like, Street, yikes. A little yeah, kid it, by himself on Rito? Yeah, Rito Street is uh, downtown Ottawa, and it's usually fairly busy. There's lots of shopping. The mall is there. So it's a, it's a mix of, um, I'd say, kind of people that are coming through to do some shopping, maybe do some bar hopping, go to restaurants. There's also, you know, the homeless population in Ottawa does hang out sort of in and around the Rito Street area. But yeah, it's not, not, great, for, not great for a 10-year-old to be in this time period mm-hmm. outside of his neighborhood on his own. But when police arrived to these suspected sightings, they found nothing. Three or four officers had been assigned to the case for the first few weeks. On February 19th, investigators said they had given up on the search and it was up to Lonnie to come out of hiding. He went missing on the 5th. Yeah. Like, where's the little kid going to hide willingly yeah. Yeah. and not be seen? If he hasn't like, popped up by now, something there's happened an issue. to him. I'll just say it. My overall theory is, okay, maybe he did crawl out of his basement window again and he left, but someone did something to this kid. Yes. Someone saw this kid, saw he was vulnerable and picked him up or kidnapped him. And, you know, we can imagine all the horrible things that would have happened next or hopefully not happened next. On February 24th, Operation Go Home was asked by the police to enlist its network of 500 to 600 runaways to help in the search. By April, eight weeks after Lonnie's disappearance, police would say they believe that Lonnie had left Ottawa. I hope that there was something that gave credit to this and not just like pure speculation or guessing. Because again, how does a 10-year-old with no identification, nothing. Money, no nothing, literally. Nothing, literally nothing. Because he just probably was crawling out to just, you know, go do some some Lonnie stuff in the neighborhood. Um Nothing. You're telling me this kid bought a bus ticket and like left with no contacts in any other cities? I'm sorry. No, this is not okay. It's a no. And I would hope if he did buy bus tickets, the lady selling the bus tickets would have been like, where are your parents? 
Yes. If if you're like, if you're leaving the city or whatever it may be, come on, common sense. No, I don't even You're know like there's, there's no, no way. There's no way. I can't believe this was like printed in articles and stuff that they like, this is like a legitimate theory that they're going with. Like, no. Okay. <laughs> Linda issued a letter pleading for her son to come home and sending messages to anyone who might be harboring him. If you are his friend, please be a good friend and help Lonnie face his problems and not run away from them. I hate the word harboring, harboring Lonnie. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, I know what it means, but what does that I know. mean? Like, no, Lonnie, I no. Know. Linda acknowledged that he had it rough in his early life because of his parents' separation, but also said if he returned home, his past problem would be put right. His father, on the other hand, said, It will be up to Lonnie to decide in the end, but I just want to make it clear to him that he's welcome here anytime. This is hard, too, because I feel like the parents are fully buying what the cops are saying. Like, it it sounds like in their statements that they really do think he's run away. Yeah. Which he might have left with the intention to run away fine, but for him never to show up again. I just feel like as a 10-year-old, you think running away is the easiest option, but I feel like you only think of the actual running away part and not Mm. the after, okay, now what? What am I going to do now that I've run away from home? Yeah, there's not a foresight there. You're not looking into your future thinking, what's my life going to look like now that I've run away from home with like a bag of like stale bread and like $5 and change. Exactly. On two occasions, it appeared that Lonnie had turned up in the U.S., which is weird right an unidentified boy was struck by a train in washington dc police checked his dental records but they did not match lonnie's this is such a strange thing because how are you telling me that there's not enough boys in washington dc that have gone missing (laughs) that you can't like like i kids go missing okay it's horrible but they do the fact that it was connected back to ottawa i wonder why like i don't know that's true then a 10-year-old boy with amnesia turned up in California claiming that his mother was in Canada. So this one makes a bit more sense as to why they would have connected it. But again, it was confirmed that this wasn't Lonnie, which must have been so hard with the family. Just mm-hmm. like a little bit of hope in there that yeah. maybe it was him. Lonnie's mom continues by saying, The first thing people figured was that Lonnie was being abused. That was crap. And streetwise? Lonnie had a lot of friends, and somebody once said he was a 17-year-old mind locked in a 10-year-old body. But still, can someone tell me how a 10-year-old is streetwise? I feel like we've been like kind of like trying to say this the entire way through. It's so yeah. true, right? Like mm-hmm. no matter how, you know, depth he was at taking care of himself or getting out of the neighborhood or even knowing parts of Ottawa, he's still 10. And he right. still thinks like a 10-year-old. You can and only be so mature. mature. Exactly. Some kids do mature way sooner than others, but that doesn't take away the fact that he's still a 10-year-old. Elmer said he was not sure what he would do if his son walked through the door again. I'd probably stand there and stare for a while. Then I'd either give him a big hug or hit him for staying away so long and not letting us know he was okay. This is a rough look, Elmer. Like, I get that he's trying to say that, like, yeah. like the Like, are you kidding and- me? Did you really yeah. do this to us? You know? Exactly. Idiot. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because it's like, if it's yeah. true that he was just a runaway and hiding somewhere and then showed back up, yeah. then it is like, come on, kid. Like, are you kidding? Like, do you know the stress that you put your family in, your mother and your father in, the community in? Mm-hmm. But I just feel like the delivery wasn't great on this quote. I feel like, if anything, he should have been like, like, to make it a bit better, he should have been like, I'd give him the biggest hug and welcome him home. And then give and him then, a, <laughs> Yeah. And, and then, then give him a best t- believe that <laughs> you're gonna have some some choice words for this exactly. kid. Exactly. So we're gonna close this case out by another quote from Linda Boudreaux, who's Lonnie's mother. 
How can a boy that age stay away so long? I've got my hopes up now for Christmas. That's when people want to be back with their families. Lonnie's date of birth was February 15th, 1970. He was 10 years old at the time he went missing. He's a white male. He was 53 to 69 inches and weighed 86 to 158 pounds. His hair color was blonde and he had blue eyes. Anyone with potential information on the Boudreaux case is asked to call the Auto Police Service at 613-236-1222 or email missingpersons at autopolice.ca and the case reference number is 1985-285-043918. Residents can also contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. We'll also be um, adding the picture of Lonnie to our social media, but there's also an age progression picture, which I think are always so interesting that the the computer-generated age progression picture, so we'll add that to our social media as well. Now, I think it's aged until he's about, like, 19, so obviously now it's way outdated, but it just gives us a a nice idea of what he would have looked like. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I don't think I've ever seen... Like, I oh, see no? those, like, filters that you could do on, like, Snapchat yes, or whatever. Yeah. But, like, a legit one, that's pretty cool. Because, yeah, there's no way you would be able to identify, like, a full-grown adult from a 10-year-old boy. Yeah, I'd love to see them do, like, what he would look like now. Mm-hmm. You know? Like I said, I was originally planning on doing this case as kind of a mini episode because I thought it would be shorter with the amount of information available. But during my research, another name came up. So we're jumping into another case. Our second case for today is the disappearance of Justin Rudder. So our case starts October 9th, 2009. Justin Rudder is a 14-year-old boy living in the Lower Town neighborhood of Ottawa, Ontario. Since my dad so beautifully described Vanier, I thought I would set the scene for Lower Town. Lower Town, also known in French as La Basseville, is a neighborhood in the Rideau-Vanier ward in central Ottawa, Ontario. It is the oldest part of the city and it is bounded by Rideau Street to the south and the Ottawa River to the west and the north and the Rideau River to the east. It includes the commercial Byward Market area in the southwestern part and is predominantly residential in the north and east. For context, this is only about a 10-minute drive from Vanier and it's actually walkable. I've done it. I've walked from Vanier to the University of Ottawa, which is sort of near and through Lower Town. Back to October 9th, Justin's mom woke up and took a look in her son's room. Immediately, she knew that there was something wrong. He was not in his bed. Right away, she picks up the phone and calls police. She is quoted in the article as saying, The second thing I did is I called my mother and I apologized. I never knew what that felt like. Jay, who is Justin's mom, describes not having had a perfect childhood herself. Her dad left and her mom, a single parent, worked a lot and this prompted the teenager to leave the home without explanation on more than one occasion. She says that her mother used to go downtown with pictures of her searching for her daughter. Aww. I know. On October 10th, 2009, a Saturday story in the Ottawa Citizen told readers that the 14-year-old had never before stayed away from home overnight. They were asked to keep an eye out for a slim Caucasian teenage boy with light brown hair and brown eyes. He was last seen by friends Thursday night before they parted ways on Cote Street near Saint Laurent Boulevard. Jay describes Justin as a pain in the butt, which... Some people might see this other ways. I thought that was so sweet. Like, what 14-year-old boy is not a pain in the butt? Yeah, especially when you say it like that. Like, understandable. Yes. She continues by saying that... If he could do something to frighten me or get a rise out of me, he did it. He was a very active child. He was not a gamer. He was definitely a nature kid. Outdoors, climbing, getting into mischief with his siblings or friends, probably doing something he wasn't supposed to. The family lived on Murray Street in the projects is how Jay refers to it. She says, We saw a lot of broken people, but even those broken people knew my son and thought he was an amazing kid. 
Oh, I think I, I just got chills. And I wrote this. Well, that's a quote, but I wrote the outline. So sad. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure like, because she called her mom to apologize because she knows she, you know, just left the house without telling her mom as a kid many times. She probably is just like, wow, my mom felt like this. It's like full circle for her yeah. in like, the worst way. Justin is also described as streetwise, but soft hearted, mischievous, but also empathetic and devoted to his family. Still boyish looking, yet capable of putting on some swagger that seems to belong uniquely to teenagers. At 14, he was still figuring out who he was. Of course he was. I'm still figuring out who I am. Like, literally. You know, like, I just, this whole quote is very sweet. And I just, of course he was still figuring out what he was. He has years to try and figure out who yeah. he is. The night after Justin went missing, his mom went driving around looking for him. She says, I was so consumed with this overwhelming feeling that I would never, ever see him again. I don't know what that meant, but that's how I felt. It's reported that Justin had told friends around 10 p.m. the night he went missing that he planned to stay out late, or perhaps all night. He didn't say why. Police say they've received dozens and dozens of tips and have spoken with hundreds of people about Justin's disappearance. For a time, every youth arrested in Ottawa was asked if they knew where Justin was. Which is very is a very interesting way to try and get some information, which I think is, is very smart by police to try and if, if anyone's getting in trouble or children that hang out on the streets more than others yeah. for whatever reason to kind of ask them and show them a picture of Justin and try to get any information they can. Justin being a runaway, just like Lonnie, was an active theory. Again, how I, I, I'm a firm believer that you can't drop off the face of the earth and okay, it starts with the idea of a runaway, but someone did something to these boys and I think that's a fact. There was also a bunch of other theories. One, that he took his own life, which, okay, where's the body? Like, that doesn't make sense. People don't leave mm -hmm. their home, spend time at the park outside and take their own life. And then did someone take him, which I think is a theory that we, we'd like to subscribe to in these in these cases. But again, we'd have no idea. And then was there some kind of accident? Which, again, where is his body then? Mm -hmm. And like little kids who, unfortunately, because it does happen, do take their own life. I just feel like they're not, I don't know, they just don't have the mentality to think, do it somewhere no one's ever going to find you. Like, it's it's just not that. I feel like it's way more common for kids to, to kids who do do that, unfortunately, to do it in the safe space of their own home. Yeah. Again, straight from the article, public interest in Justin's case grew in the days that followed his disappearance. If you kept up with the Ottawa news, you got to know him from his family, from posters that they plastered all over the city and from Facebook information that reached hundreds of people to try to help and search for the friendly kid known to frequent some of Ottawa's roughest neighborhoods. Jay hasn't decided what faith she believes befell her son. Probably not as bad as I imagine. I have nightmares every night. I don't sleep. I haven't slept in 10 years, like really slept. I have been thinking about these both of these cases all week long. So I can't imagine that being your child that goes missing and how much that impacts your life. And like the more we do this, the more I'm like, once I have kids, I'm never going to let them sleep over anywhere. Oh I'm God. never going to let them out of my sight. I'm going to have a baby. I'm literally going to have a baby monitor in the room till they're like adults, you know, <laughs> like. Are you still sleeping? It's 1 a.m. Like, are you still yeah. in your bedroom? You can't trust anyone. You can't even trust your own kids to at least like not even put themselves in a position where bad things well, will happen because yeah. they're kids. Their kids. kids are so impressionable too. And mm -hmm. like even at 14, and I don't know if you have like vivid memories of this, but I have memories of my dad. If a stranger offers you candy or if he says like, come see my puppy in my van, like I, and I, maybe it's because he thought that I would just be like a sucker and go right <laughs> for that puppy right into that van, which fair, I might have. <laughs> 
But I remember, like, these, I vividly remember these conversations with my parents. Like, do not do this. Do not do that. Like, if someone offers you this, do not do that, right? So I've been scared of strangers my whole entire life, so. (laughs) They were like, she's scared. (laughs) We don't need to tell her. (laughs) I think I was a very trusting kid. I think I would have just gone with anyone. (laughs) So um, Jane never believed that that, uh, Justin had run away. The officers assigned to his case were from the Forces Youth Intervention and Diversion Section, an OPS branch that investigates juvenile missing persons reports. Those investigators from the youth section, they're used to dealing with troubled kids and runaway teens and that kind of thing. When they see an investigation, they tend to think a certain way. This was said by Jean-Luc Bonnet, a patrol sergeant with the auto police. Jean-Luc spent about two years as a detective in the missing persons unit. The beginning of 2014, he dove into Justin's case around the five-year anniversary of his disappearance and brought himself up to speed on the work that had been done before him. From the flavor of the reports that I read about it, it seemed like the focus was to find a runaway. The big challenge with teenagers, of course, is that being missing in a voluntary way, what gets sometimes called runaway kids, or as a result of family conflict, is statistically the most common reason for kids being missing, and so much more common than foul play that it does tend to be the hypothesis of choice among law enforcement and other people trying to solve it. It sounds like there was even a fair amount of evidence that this was, at least initially, a voluntary absence. It's reported that Justin has recently started high school, and according to his mom, he was having a hard time with it. He wasn't going to class, and she suspects now that he was smoking pot. Jay was trying to get him back on track, but there's only so much control a parent can have over a teenager. This sort of sounds like a normal, regular teenager to me, right? Like, again, maybe having a hard time with school. My mm-hmm. heart for sure goes out to that. Smoking pot, that's, in retrospect, really not that big of a deal. Our whole high school, like, hallways and everything smelled like pot 24 like, <laughs> I don't think it's really abnormal, but... Yeah, like, you know, ideally it's not like a regular thing, but yeah. it's not something you necessarily want your 14-year-old to do, but no, yeah. just looking back, I don't want to paint him as this, like, drugged out kid, mm-hmm. like, that's, he's smoking pot, it's fine. Yeah. And, um, it, again, if he's having a hard time with school, this is proof, right? Like, it was what, we, what we were just talking about. Who wants to go back when they're not enjoying it or being, like, regularly rewarded for what they're doing? In the days that followed, the runaway theory only got stronger because the police and the media reported sightings of Justin in Vanier, Lower Town, and the Byward Market. Those sightings shared with the public were never confirmed by the police or were determined to be false. Even the last time Justin was seen, his conversation with a friend in which he said that he might stay out all night, the one I mentioned earlier, was later revealed to have never been verified. So it's actually never verified if he actually told that group of friends that he was planning on staying out all night or if the last person who saw him was his mom when he was on his way out. In 2014, the auto police service said that Justin was last seen by his family that day. So on October 8th, 2009. So very inconsistent and the reporting in this and the media is very inconsistent. Justin had asked his mom to go to the park. Jay remembers him saying he wouldn't be back late. If he was going to run away, why would he ask me? She questions. I never said, I love you, mom. I'll see you later when I was running away from home. I went out my window. My mom didn't even know I was gone. You don't for the first time in your life take a stab at running away from home and disappear off the face of the earth. Looking back, Jay says she resents the police decision to speak openly about her son's case being a runaway. He ran away. He doesn't want to be at home. And then people speculate that I don't really care about, but they just don't care as much. They're not interested anymore. 
because he's just put this on himself. Even if it is a runaway, it's still an effing serious thing. He's 14, but it still takes away from the fact that this child is missing. By the five-year anniversary of Justin's last day at home, the auto police had received almost 50 tips related to Justin's whereabouts, but hadn't confirmed a single one. I don't know why the number 50 felt really low to me, and maybe it's not, but I was just like, only 50 tips? Like, this is supposed to be, like, news all over Ottawa right now. Like, yeah. I don't know. It was then that they released an artist sketch of what Justin might look like at the age of 19. So, again, there's a, an age progression picture that we'll post on our social media. And offered $5,000 for information that could pin down his accurate location or lead to the prosecution of anyone responsible for his disappearance. So, it seems like now, five years after, they're kind of thinking, like, hmm, maybe this wasn't a runaway. Yeah, maybe not. Probably not. It was the first time a reward was put on the table for a missing person's case in the history of the police service. So that's pretty cool, I thought. The age progression picture, I thought, is nowhere near as good as the one for Lonnie, which is strange because this is years later. Yeah, because I feel we'll like Lonnie it. looked more realistic. This is like literally just a sketch. A sketch. Exactly. Yeah. Jay talks about a fight that Justin had been in. A youth came up, so a kid in the neighborhood or a kid, you know, living in Ottawa, came up to her son while he was sitting at a table in Lower Town's Jules Morin Park. He was much larger than Justin and beat him up, quote unquote, beat him up. I don't know exactly what that means. Like, we don't have the details. She knows this because someone captured the incident on a camera phone and the police obtained the footage. Jay couldn't bring herself to watch it, but Justin's father did. Reporting from the time corroborated Jay's account. Justin went missing sometime after 8 p.m. after getting into a fight with another boy at Lower Town Park. So I guess this happened the night that he went missing, is what I understand. Yeah, it kind of sounds that way. Then in the days after Justin's disappearance, Jay said she was given secondhand information that the boy who beat up Justin was bragging to his friends that they had stabbed Justin a bunch of times and throw him off the bridge. Obviously, this is something that should definitely be looked into. I just feel like if kids were bragging about this, there's no way it wouldn't have been looked into. But maybe I would I'm putting too so. much faith into the police. Yeah, I don't know. Immediately, Jay remembers calling the police from the parking lot and relaying everything she had just heard about the fight. Within an hour, she said, the lead detective told her it was just a rumor. Within an hour. Like, how much can you so really dismissed. do in an hour? You can't. You can't. You did nothing. You literally did nothing, which just is sucks. Like, he probably literally got a voicemail or heard that she had called or something. And it was like, oh. And then was like two minutes later, call her back. And that was just an hour later from when she had actually called. I hope not, but there's a possibility. Especially if he was like really labeled as a runaway, right? Then the police yeah. officer could be thinking, why waste my time? All these years later, the same boy, now an adult, was recently charged with alleged involvement in an unrelated violent crime. So that adds adds credence to the theory. Justin's mom doesn't think suicide is a possibility. Justin had ADHD, and unlike elementary school, where he was surrounded by supportive people, the high school he started at was not a great fit. He wasn't showing up, so she registered him into a new school not long before his disappearance. And, oh, this is such a good mom because, like I said, like, I have had my own struggles with this. And having a supportive parent like that to be like, this is not a good fit yeah. for you. You're not the problem. Mm-hmm. You have ADHD. You just need maybe some extra attention or a yeah. different, a different like scene or a different like school system yeah. or whatever. 
let's find you somewhere where you can actually thrive yeah yes jay describes her son as a glue that brought loved ones together she said after he was gone the family just imploded jay shares her faith has helped her somewhat but happiness has been hard to come by jay believes more support needs to be made available to families like her own who've had a child disappear she's not in contact with the police anymore the last few times she tried to get in touch jay said no one called her back and her sense is that justin's case wasn't really investigated as I mentioned, a $5,000 reward remains available for any information confirming Justin's current whereabouts. Anyone with information about him is asked to contact the OPS Missing Persons Unit at 613-236-1222, extension 2355, during business hours, or at 613-236-1222, extension 7300, for 24-hour assistance. Anonymous tips can go through Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. This week, we will be donating to the Missing Children Society of Canada. This is from their website. The Missing Children Society of Canada's mandate is to help return missing children to a safe environment. The organization established in 1986 has evolved from distributing posters to find a missing child to embracing the latest technology to help police in the search for that child. MCSC also reaches out to enlist the help of other professionals in the search and location of missing children, in addition to working with traditional media, online and social media, to bring public awareness to cases of missing kids. MCSC provides affected families with the knowledge and resources throughout the search and reunification while ensuring that all its programs are free so that all families in need of help receive it, regardless of their financial situation. If you would like to contribute to the Missing Children Society of Canada, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Oh.